I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silver Core, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silver Core Club, which includes 10 million in North America-wide liability insurance ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. All right, I've been receiving some fantastic feedback from listeners and Silvercore Club members and I wanted to take a moment to say thank you. It is through your feedback and by sharing this podcast with others that we're able to continually grow and evolve and for that I am grateful. Entries for the firefighter training package that the Silver Corps Club is giving away in conjunction with the training division in Texas have been rolling in. If you know someone who has aspirations of being a firefighter, this life-changing giveaway will provide them with the necessary training required to apply with their local departments. Hurry, it ends May 31st. Today I'm joined by a modern-day Thoreau, the author of Becoming Wild, Living the Primitive Life on a West Coast Isle. She's a TED Talk graduate and contestant on History Channel's hit TV series, Alone, where she survived 51 days in the Arctic on next to nothing. Welcome to the Silvercore podcast, Nikki Van Scheindel. Oh, thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you. It's been about, what, a year? Yeah, definitely. At least a year, right? Yeah, we've been texting and talking back and <laughs> forth, and we're finally able to make this connect. You know, I've got your book. Great book, by the way. Thanks. Anybody who's interested in being alone or living a primitive lifestyle or what it might be like, I would definitely recommend checking out Becoming Wild, Living the Primitive Life on a West Coast Style. So when I read through that, I found a few similarities. You know, I'm looking at things that you have done and that you do, and I'm looking back at uh, some things in my life. And a few of the similarities I found, well, one was just kind of a funny one. You had a cat named Scout. Yeah. So I've got a daughter named Scout. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Was, was that inspired by Harper Lee's novel? No, actually, uh, it was inspired by, uh, the ancient, like Apache scouts. Ah, I love it. Yeah. She was incredible. She's still alive. She's actually retired living in town with my mom now, but she, I think she's about 20 years old now. Holy, um, that's, so I'm not a cat person, probably because I'm allergic to cats. That'd be a primary one. I remember... As a kid, I really wanted a cat and I, I'm doing air quotes here. I, I found a cat and I clutched it so close to my chest and it was clawing me up. And anyways, I brought it home and I told my parents, I said, this cat followed me home. Can we keep it? Right. <laughs> my parents like, yeah, yeah. I followed you home. And I'm like, I don't know why I'm so itchy. And <laughs> look, I took off my shirt, took a look and sure enough, absolute hives. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm not a cat person either, but I. Found her slightly similar. She was abandoned by her feral mother. And, okay. And uh, I was going off on this big survival track and I said, okay, cat, like you can hang out with me, but this is what your life's going to be like. So you're going to have to be wild. And she was amazing. That's not too bad for a cat. Yeah. She's an incredible cat. So reading through your book, you make a number of references to Sam Gribbley. <laughs> Let me just reach into my bag here. Oh, like, wow. One of the original coffees. Look what I got. <gasps> cool. 
So if you look on the front cover there, or sorry, yeah, there you go. <laughs> look at your writing. It's like it's, tiny kid writing. <laughs> it hasn't progressed much. What I just handed Nikki here is my original book, My Side of the Mountain. So cool. So I think it was what, grade four when I got that book. And I love that book. And reading through your book, you love that book as well. Oh yeah. This was my favorite book of all times. I mean, I wanted to be Sam Gribbley more than anything when I was a kid. I just like after school, I'd run into the bush and start making bows and arrows and you know, picking berries. And I was like, I'm going to be Sam. And then I grew up obviously and forgot all about Sam until, you know, I was in my twenties and started learning all this stuff about survival and living off the land. And one day I was at uh, one of my teacher's house and I pulled this book off the shelf and it was this, my side of the mountain. Yeah. And I thought, oh my gosh, I have all these crazy skills to go be Sam. Like, totally. I'm going to go do it. And uh, that's why, uh, yeah, I was really inspired by this book. I named my little row book Gribbly. Yeah. And uh, it was really cool. Yeah. I, for whatever reason, that book really resonated me, resonated with me as a kid and uh, so much to the point that I decided at lunchtime to sneak into the classroom and steal that book. <laughs> and as I'm stealing that book, the teacher comes in and then I've got to come up with a story. And the teacher said, what are you doing, Trav? I said, well, you know, I just, um, I, whatever I came up with, he says, oh, why do you have that book? Oh no, that book? That's my book, I said. Total lie. <laughs> the teacher says, that's your book, is it? And grabs it from me, opens it up and takes a look on the inside. And sure enough, there's the, uh, the school stamp on there and looks at me. He's like, you sure this is your book? And I'm, now I'm fully committed to the lie. <laughs> I'm like, uh, like, what do you do when you're in grade four? I'm like, yes, that's my book. The teacher, you can see the rip on the page there. The teacher rips a page out and says, well, if it's your book, you better put your name in it. Oh, that's <laughs> and, so cool. And I, the teacher said, uh, but this is between you and me. If anyone asks, essentially I'll deny it. And I thought, holy crow, that's, that's a cool teacher. So I've held on to that book wow. ever since. Cause it's uh, Super it's an cool. interesting story about a kid lives in the wild. And I never really liked the ending where he moved back home. Yeah. Neither did I. Yeah. Neither did <laughs> I. That is so cool that she was like, you know what? He loves this book so much. I'm going to give it to him. What a, have you ever been in touch with that teacher? No, Since, no, I haven't. I mean, look, your life, you know, just like Sam, totally. me, just like Sam. I actually contacted um, Jean Craighead George when I got back. Really? And said, hey, I got to say, your book has inspired me my whole life. And I just wanted to say, hey, I became Sam. And she wrote back immediately, said, I've been waiting for a kid to tell me this. Really? And I'm going to tell every other kid that you can be Sam too. Because she just constantly gets letters from so many kids that is inspired by her. By her book. Um, unfortunately, she passed away right before my book was published, so I couldn't send her a copy, but we chatted all the time, Christmas cards, sending pictures. She was actually an extraordinary woman. Really? Mm -hmm. Did, was there any bit of yes. Sam in her? Oh, yeah. Like her father, I think, was one of the first um, falconers. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, she spent lots of time in the bush learning all these things. Yeah, she was really an amazing woman. That is so cool. Mm -hmm. So you spent, and your book talks about a year and a half that you spent out living primitively on an island here in BC. Yeah. Did you yeah. want to talk a little bit about sure. what primitively means? Yeah, exactly. Well, I was a pretty hardcore 
It's got to be all primitive, so absolutely nothing modern. No knife, just stone tools and bows and arrows. And I was, you know, sleeping in hides and making everything from baskets to clothing to um, bone hooks and rope, wow. cedar bark rope. And, and then there became this point where it was like, you know what? A frying pan is an amazing event, like invention. <laughs> you know, I love this pot. Yes. Um, and so it just came time to be like, you know what, it's okay that I'm going to keep a frying pan. Like making clay pottery and dealing with frying on rocks all works, obviously, but there was more I wanted to learn about, you know, living out in the wild and the time it takes to live absolutely primitively like that. There's no, no tribe. I don't have a tribe. I don't have a people to help. So I made these exceptions where I would keep you know, a bunch of rope, and then I would just tie cedar bark onto it. Okay. So I, I made thousands of feet of cedar bark rope, but it became <laughs> like, wow, I need even more to live. So I would just tie cedar bark onto fishing line and have, you know, 40 feet of cedar bark and then regular fishing line. And so there was ways that I utilized some modern gear. Um, I kept my knife. I kept an axe. Right. I mean, try you know, axing down a tree with a stone. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> I've tried. It, yeah, it takes forever. Yes, you can do it. <laughs> yes. It is doable. Yeah, but, you know, I'm not trying to prove that this stuff worked. Mm. So, um, yeah, and there was this other things. I kept a saw and just some basic stuff. Um, I got rid of the fish hooks, which was really, really interesting. I made bone hooks to make them work. And um, there was some things that I wasn't willing to go modern. Like I made all my bows and arrows and... I saw that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I did sleep in hides. Uh, I kept modern clothing. I did make a bunch of clothing, but <laughs> like walking around in a cedar bark skirt just <laughs> isn't <laughs> quite as good as Carhartt's. <laughs> no kidding. Well, you you came from a pretty you, you came from a background. You you were a sponsored snowboarder at what twenty three? I think it was. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. in my twenties, and yeah, I definitely didn't come from a family of you know, outdoors people. My dad was into camping a little bit, but, you know, we had a motor home and I just, yeah, my, my family's not a real big outdoor person. So I grew up pretty privileged, show jumping horses and yeah. you know, just a different life from what I live now for sure. Wasn't there a horse named Ivy at some point? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. There was a lot of horses and um, my family in Holland uh, raises show jumpers and I uh, got my start there okay. and uh, just, just my life for all of my teenage years. And I think I started maybe when I was eight Okay. and I just wanted to go to the Olympics. That's all I breathed and dreamed was horses and um, yeah, I just wanted to go to the Olympics like my trainer. And then... You know, it's expensive sport. Totally. <laughs> and my mother one day was like, all right, um, she was going to buy this horse named Ivy. It was going to be my, you know, big junior jumper and found this horse that was very cheap in the world of uh, show jumpers, but was this undiscovered gem, if okay. you will. So I was like, I'm going to make so much money on this horse next year. <laughs> mom, is going to be amazing. And my trainer and I were all excited that my mom was going to buy the horse and uh, she got a flat tire. I guess on the way. And so, okay. I got home from college that day and I said, Hey, did we buy Ivy? You know, like, yeah. is she mine? And she said, Oh yeah, she vetted out well, but, um, I got a flat tire on the way. And I was like, Oh, that's a bummer. And she goes, yeah, I took it. 
as a sign from God oh my God. that it's time for you to get a job. And I was like, what? <laughs> a job? Like, I'd never worked wow. in my life. I was like, fine, I'll get a job. So I went down to the bar and I got this job and I'll never forget the first paycheck I got. You know, I hadn't even, I wasn't feeding my horse even or turning it out. So yeah. I was working really hard and was all proud of myself. And I got this check and, you know, it was like so little. I was like, can't even buy a shirt for this. How the heck does anybody get by? Buy Ivy. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, wow. Yeah, it kind of started a different progression of my life, which I'm super grateful for. Huh. So the wise dispensation of divine providence. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Holy crow. So you go from a pretty privileged life to wanting to be alone. Essentially, yeah. you wanting to have, want to be out in the wild. What, what was driving that for you? Cause it, you, it sounds like you come from a pretty competitive background. If you're going to be Olympic level oh, horse yeah. jumper, a sponsored snowboarder. Oh, yeah. You're number one. That's all you do is you just work really hard and train and that's all you focus on. Was that just something you're bored with or is that something bred into you? <laughs> <laughs> my dad, definitely. Okay. My, my dad, everything was about winning and, you know, competition ever since I can remember, you know, even playing checkers with them wasn't like a fun game with your dad. You're like, your finger came off, uh, you lose a turn. You're like, what? I'm like four. Dutch. <laughs> totally the Dutch. I can say that I'm Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So, um, yeah, I kind of took that level of intensity, uh, into training to be a naturalist survivalist and tracker. Um, just decided, hey, like this is something. I actually just felt really compelled to do it. I started having these incredible experiences in nature that I just couldn't understand or even share with people. They seem so, I don't know, magical and crazy. And right. um, I just felt compelled by something I couldn't understand to make this my life. It really wasn't a conscious decision of, hey, this seems neat. I'm going to do it. It was like something I just, I had to do it. Even though I was like, this is crazy. Who cares about starting fires with sticks? Like, I, I shouldn't care about this. <laughs> Man, I, you know, as a kid, I, there was this group called Friends of the Fort. And this was out in Fort Langley. And okay. they'd dress up in buckskins and moccasins. Oh, yes, and, I've been to it. You remember that? Yes. So there is a, a fellow there who was making flintlock rifles. And I grew Ooh. up in a, in a firearms family and. So my dad was getting into making his own Kentucky rifle and cool. yeah. And I started getting into that area as well, made my own moccasins and nice. got wearing my, my knickers and I'd go out into Fort Langley and when they did portages and yeah. I don't know, it was kind of, it was kind of neat, but I, you, you took that whole thing to the next level. Mm -hmm. I mean, you. You really pushed that. Do you yeah. still feel that burning desire in yourself to, to keep foraging down the primitive path? Yeah, I do actually, even more so now. I did take, it's not like I took a break from it, but I, I did move out into the wilderness and become an off-gridder, which is a different lifestyle than a primitive survivalist, if you will. Right. I mean, it has elements, obviously, of both, but being an off-gridder is just a lot of hard labor work. Totally um, is. Building a cabin and all of that took a lot of me from just simply hiking around the forest and trying to touch animals and doing what I <laughs> do. So there was, like, several years where it was just more grunt laboring and, 
you know, taken time to do those things that I really wanted to do. But um, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm kind of getting back into the learning more about the old skills. I, I've reconnected. I was adopted. Okay. And I've reconnected with my birth family, okay. which has been really exciting and um yeah, really exciting. I mean, it's been a lot of emotion, don't get me wrong. Totally. But um, so I found my family and some cousins. And through that, I've recently found my birth mother and I'm Ojibwe. Um, so it's I'm really excited to go back to Ontario and do a survival trek out there, learning with I've met a man that's going to teach me how to make a birch bark canoe. And so I'm going to, cool. I know, I'm going to go out onto the land there where my ancestors are from and kind of relive that area and landscape, which I'm really excited about. Did you know right, that you were adopted or did you find oh, out? Oh yeah. I've known ever since I was born. Like, I, I don't remember not being adopted. Um, my parents have always been very open about it, but it's interesting, this whole circle of my life coming around, you know, when I was a little kid, all I wanted to do was, you know, live off the land and, you know, every Halloween I would dress up as like a native kid and, um, it's just in your blood. Yeah. So clearly there is a reason why I was learning all that. It, it's oh, just a part of me. Yeah. So it's been really interesting and fun and to reconnect with that and just start learning all about just the Anishinaabe and I'm really excited about it. Now, so I wasn't adopted, but I'm just thinking about it now. Did you feel maybe a sense of social isolation as in, or maybe just a level of connectedness? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I've actually just in the last couple of months, I've been really delving into that. I mean, there was definitely a, I would say not a separation perhaps, but just a belonging, I think is the word. You know, it's not like I don't belong with my family now. I right. love my family. Sure. I mean, that's my mom and my dad and my brother. Um, but there is this sense as an adopted person that you know that you're not related. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that has permeated my whole life of this not belonging mm -hmm. with other, you know, I didn't know my heritage. You know, I'm Scottish and... Um, cool. Yeah, I'm Scottish and native, and uh, I didn't know any of that. So I've spent most of my life studying native traditions and Celtic traditions, which is interesting. So you have your bannock with your haggis? <laughs> that's <and> <laughs> right. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think that's why I've been always attracted to nature, because I feel like I belong there. It's like the one place that that is truly my home and, and my people in a way, you know? Totally. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's also why I've been... I love being alone. I'm totally comfortable being alone. I think that's why it was great for the show because I've always played by myself as a little kid. I have no problem. I can <laughs> always entertain. I'm never bored. Um, so, Do you totally. find it difficult to socialize in groups? Uh, do you find it maybe particularly after you've been alone for a while, that transition period? Is that a difficult I transition? Would say, I would say it used to be. Uh, I used to... To be honest, people used to really irritate me. Mm. Um, I just uh, I can hear that. I just, <laughs> I just, yeah, I'd rather do things myself. Mm -hmm. um, wasn't a great team player. Mm -hmm. um, but once I went on alone, I honestly, it was so strange. I went on the TV show alone mm -hmm. to figure out what it's like to be alone. And it turned out when I came back from that, that I just, I got this incredible love of humanity out of it. Um, which made no sense to me, <laughs> but when I left and while I was out there, I just, I don't know, it was just this, 
incredible night and just all of a sudden was like, wow, I love people where I would never have said that before. And if you talk to anybody that was on that show prior to now, they're like, yeah, I don't know what happened to Nikki out in the woods, but (laughs) something fundamentally changed about this woman. Was it like a light switch? (laughs) Yeah. It was just like instantaneously one night I was crawling into my bed. That's interesting. And it's like I was struck by some star and I'm like, wow, I feel like an entirely different person. It took me about a year getting back off the show to figure out who I was and how to interact because I was so genuinely concerned and interested about other people where before I honestly, I didn't really care too much about what was going on in other people's lives as much as I should have or wanted to. Was there an event that somehow triggered that rewiring of the brain? Yeah. I, I wish I could say what it was. And I've gone back through time and time again in my journals and stuff. I mean, you're not allowed to write anything when you're on alone. Okay. So there's no way of recording down what's happening to you daily. Mm. Um, and so it becomes harder after to get back those memories and leaving the show and the way I did, you know, I was pulled out. It was pretty traumatic for me. So I had quite a lot of trauma after that initially for the first couple of weeks back. And so not that I've lost memories of it, mm. but it's hard to get back all of the things that happened to you on a daily basis on a show like that. So well, I don't know what triggered that moment. I feel like it's my life, had, you know, just every little thing step had come up to this moment where I was alone in the Arctic and I was like, yay, here's who I truly am. And I'm not afraid to be who I truly am anymore because I was on that show and um, I think there was just a lot of things that happened to me emotionally and spiritually on alone that I'd never dreamed would have happened. The universe unfolds as it should. Yeah. It's really cool. Well, you talk about a spiritual side and I, I want to touch on that because yeah. you talk about it in your book as well. And I, and I find a couple of things that you wrote really interesting, but before we go there, what were some of the most difficult things you found about being alone? For 51 days. Yeah. Uh, I really didn't find anything difficult about being alone. It was amazing. As soon as I stepped off that helicopter, I just like couldn't wait to see that thing disappear. You know, it's like, yes, I'm finally going to know what it's like to truly be alone. Like we just don't get that. I don't know if it's a luxury, but we just don't get that experience in modern life anymore to be alone. I mean, you it's, don't. it's impossible to find. Not in um, the cities anyways, that's for sure. No. And so I was like really excited to feel what that was going to feel like. And I had never felt more connected to my friends and my family and my teachers in my whole life while I was on alone. Like it was almost to the point where I just felt there were so many people around me. I just get goosebumps thinking about it. I'd be like, look, people back up. Like I just, I need some space around my fire pit. Like, um, so I, I never wow. missed anybody. Like, I thought, actually thought I felt kind of bad about it. I was like, I should probably feel bad. I don't miss a single person, but I felt like I could just reach out to them and there they were, you know, I had certain things in place. Like when the moon, full moon was there, my grandmother would be thinking about me. And at night, you know, I had different things that my mom would light a candle. And I don't know if that helped or not, but um, I certainly never felt like there wasn't a moment I could reach out to a, even a teacher with an answer I needed. Mm. And immediately my mind would be filled with, hey, that's a great idea. Where it came from, I don't know, uh, you know, but really, it was really, really cool to just have this incredible sense of connection, even though I was so far from anything. 
That is pretty neat. Mm-hmm. So I never, I never had any just loneliness or I miss my family so much or anything like that. I have no, no experience about that. The, the things that are painful for people on the show. Right. I, d- I didn't feel those things that others went through. Do you, do you find it hard to quiet the voices in your head? I mean, we mm-hmm. have so many distractions in our day-to-day life, living in the city or living in civilization and with technology and yeah. text messages and uh, totally. social media and all the rest. I personally find it takes me a few days anyways, when I'm out in the bush to decompress. And in those few days, my head is just going crazy. And all of this stuff that maybe I haven't thought about in a long time starts popping in mm-hmm. and, uh, arguments I've had in the past start popping up and you have, have all of this inner dialogue. Yeah. Uh, if I'm on my own long enough, eventually that changes, but doesn't go away but it changes. What's your experience with that? Because I've never been 51 days alone. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, I have learned how to control the inner chatter. Hmm. Um, it's, I think one of the most important survival skills we can have is to learn how to control our mind and our emotions far more than the skills. Um, and so I've done a lot of work in my life to, it's not, I think there's a misconception. It's not turning it off. Because our mind is our most powerful thing. So Mm. I don't want to turn my mind off because it thinks up amazing stuff and it's going to save my life in a lot of instances and harm me in different instances. So I like, I don't necessarily turn it off. I just focus it. And when I don't want all the chatter, I have figured out how to quiet that out. Mostly by hearing, I can hear the I don't want to say useless chatter, but you know what I mean? I totally just know what you mean. Just the useless stuff. They're like, wow, yeah. and I just need a break from you. And I, as soon as that comes in, I'm like, hey, thanks a lot. Um, not important to me. And I just don't continue on with the stories that we tell ourselves. It, it's, it's a habit that I started that I worked hard on and it's just become natural now because it does interfere with your time in, in the wilderness. Like you have to be able to have a, a really open and engaged and focused mind when you're out in the woods. Otherwise you're going to miss, you know, that one plant in the Arctic, right? Mm. The four leaves I managed to find that were edible, right? Like <laughs> I found six rose hips. Oh, Walking around a landscape and noticing one old rose hip. I mean, you have to be very aware to even notice that. And if your mind's chattering around, it's like, oh, I wonder what people are going to think of me right now. I wonder how I look holding this camera up when I have, <laughs> you know, snot running down my face. <laughs> and I'm sure I look like hell. <laughs> and if you have those kinds of thoughts, you're literally not going to be as, as, as successful as you could be. Oh, so, you're done. Yeah. You're so, done. Um, and, and, and that I think was the one thing that, um, I loved about the show was I just made it a, a personal mission to say, okay, I'm going to try to make the best show I can for these people and I'm going to film everything. The worst, the best, the in-between, you know, I'm going to cry if I feel like I need to cry. I'm going to laugh. I'm going to goof off. I I don't, I'm just going to do that all. And it was the most freeing thing I've ever done in my life. 
like to be on national TV and, and especially my story, if you've seen, obviously my story was just a wreck out there. <laughs> it was just a total nightmare. I have no idea why all that happened, but um, it was an incredible story of one thing after the other happened to me. Like I've, I am definitely gone down in history as the most accident prone participant ever in <laughs> history. I don't know if you really want to claim that, but I will claim that. <laughs> so. Are, are you generally, generally accident prone? No, this yeah. is what was so phenomenal about the story. Like I'm not, I'm actually literally as soon as I stepped off that helicopter, I mean, the whole time you say to yourself, look, if I cut myself, I could be out of here. I want mm. that $500,000. So every time I picked up my ax, I was like, be careful. If you get an ax cut every time, every time mm. I picked up my knife, I would just remind myself. And, and there was just, gosh, you know, I cut, I, cut towards myself. I mean, what? Like I teach knife safety, right? Yes. I mean, I, you know, I, the worst was probably to stab myself with my air. I've actually never used modern arrows. I, they're like razor blades, obviously. Yes. You know. I mean, yes. I was like, whoa, these are razor blades. And every time I carried one, I was like, okay, be careful. This is a razor blade. You could literally damage yourself. And and you did. And I did, you know, I was pulling up my pants, coming home late from hunting, looking for moose. And I just, you know, did that like jump up with your pants. Yes. And I was holding one arrow and one arrow was always on. And when I came down, I just jabbed the back of my leg with the arrow. And I thought, oh, and it just probably nicked me. And I was like <laughs> walking down. Nope. No, I could feel the blood dripping. I was like, ah, jeez. And, you know, I just was like, hey, I'm going to film it. Like, I'm going to film it. I mean, you don't have to film everything, which was the enlivening thing for my part of the story for me personally. I mean, just to be able to say, hey, it's not that I don't care what people think. It's just this is what happened. This is the truth of what happened. I'm willing to own up to that truth, and I'm, I'm willing to learn from it, and it's okay that we make mistakes. And mm. to be able to be to the world your worst moments, like – now in my life, I'm like, what isn't there I can say or do that? Totally. <laughs> like, it's liberating. It was. It was the most freedom I've ever felt in my life. Wow. Yeah, it's it, really cool. As long as you can carry that with you in your mind as you go forward and carry that experience, you'll continue with that freedom, yes. I should imagine. Yes. Yeah. It was, I mean, I've, just from my experiences, I've felt what it is like to be truly free, but this just added another dimension onto that. That was really, uh. Yeah, life-changing for me, for sure. Well, you talk about using sap to heal wounds. Mm -hmm. My, uh, you know, I don't think my family's got the best record with booby traps, <laughs> but I, uh, I never met my uncle. He, uh, he died before, mm. before I was born, but, uh, uh, he was in Royal 22nd Regiment and had a faulty grenade that went off. Wow. And, but, um, I guess as a kid, he wanted to make a booby trap and he found an old rusty lawnmower blade and, and, uh, put a trip wire up and put this blade out and he laid down beside it, measured it out for about a kid's head height and, oh my. and figure, oh, this will be perfect. Right. It's stupid things that kids do. Right. And, uh, I guess some months later, completely forgetting about it, ran through and tripped and cut himself oh. in his head. And the neighbor came out and found him and says, ah, oh, I know what we got to do use some sap. <laughs> We're going to use some sap to heal this up. Nice. Uh, I guess my grandmother had other ideas and took him to the hospital, but, uh, 
Does that work? Yes. Yeah? It's great. Like when I was out in uh, for the year and a half, I used SAP exclusively. I, that particular trek, I decided to only use plants. I mean, I okay. had a first aid kit that I had brought out. It was pretty meager, to be honest, when I look back at it. But um, I never had to use it. I only used plants to um, heal any of the injuries. And even the biggest gashes, if you use really clean sap um, and kind of I, I warm it up and okay. then pour it into the wound mm -hmm. it it actually lets the wound heal from the inside out so it acts like a band-aid for one uh, stuff sticks to it at first but then it becomes less sticky okay. and then it just kind of heals from the inside so it doesn't get infected because sap has antibacterial properties in it okay and you don't have to worry about it again you don't have to keep changing dressings or whatever um it just sticks on there does it matter what kind of tree you get it from well, so I had good success with the firs, Okay. Uh, Douglas fir. When I was in the Arctic, I really, I don't know what was going on there. I, honestly, it was so cold. I would heat up the pitch. And by the time I would even try to get it on some of my wounds, it would, it would just harden right away because it was so cold. And I'd mm. like, practically burn my hand trying to get the pitch in there. And it would just always kind of fall out as it would freeze. So I'm not sure if it's more of a climate or if it was a just a different pitch. I mean, I tried okay. different pitches in the Arctic. I couldn't quite give you a, a perfect answer on that, but the pitch okay. really didn't help. I was trying to use pitch to heal all the cracks in my fingers in the Arctic because it was really painful. I could imagine. And it just it never worked. You know, I got another story about booby traps, but I think I'll save that for a different podcast. <laughs> booby traps are the best. <laughs> booby traps. <laughs> it's like that, uh, what was it, Goonies? Yeah. <laughs> oh, what was that kid's name with the slick shoes? Oh my gosh, booby I traps. can't remember. Booby traps, totally. Data. Yes. Data. Yes, that was his name. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so, and I'm not being cheeky here, but I got to oh, ask. You can be cheeky. <laughs> Is Sasquatch real? Oh, great. Um, and, and, and not necessarily Sasquatch. And the reason I ask this is because, am I pronouncing this right? Uh, Jonaqua? Yeah. Jonaqua. Jonaqua. Mm -hmm. Female Sasquatch. Yeah. The wild woman of the woods. Yes. So this is an incredible question. It's one of those questions that you're saying, okay, like, how am I going to answer this? Because just the, I don't know, the culture around Sasquatch has... It's nutty, mm -hmm. um, but I have to say the native communities, indigenous people all over the world, there is some supernatural being, if you will, mm -hmm. as a Sasquatch, whether it's the Yetis and the Sasquatches, the Junaquas. I mean, there's so many cultures around the world that have this being in their uh, history. Right. 10,000 years of storytelling of Bequas and Junaqua for the Northwest people. I mean- I'm not obviously can't speak to their traditions on that being, but it's a live and well energy that is talked about where I live mm -hmm. um, amongst the people. And I have had, I have to say, some pretty incredible, unexplainable experiences with things in the woods that I don't know how to explain yeah. with tracks. Um, and I've definitely been chased and heard something coming at me with a friend of mine that was extraordinarily scary and yeah. I have no idea what it was. Ch um, shaking huge alder trees that were about a foot and a half probably wide, 
making this horrid yelling, screaming kind of noise and really? charging through this thick brush. I mean, my friend and I just looked at her like, I have no idea what that is. Like, is that a bear? Or like, it was unlike any sound I've ever heard a bear make. I've been around a bear a long time. Yeah, and I, I gotta say, I don't know what it was, but my friend and I didn't wait around. My dog was already like 500 <laughs> feet ya. down the trail, just <laughs> left me. And my friend and I just like ran miles back to our truck. And we never talked about it again. It was just one of those things like, hey, you know, years later, we'd be like, hey, remember that um, hike we took at Lost Lake? And you're like, uh, yeah. What do you think that was? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, have a good life. I'll talk to you in a year. I like that definition of an energy or a spirit or a um, Yeah, I mean, a, a there's feeling. something. A f I mean, I know personally a lot of people who have claimed to see them. Um, some old timers that honestly just come from a different generation. They're, they're not really storytellers in the way people are storytellers now. Mm. I also have a tracking teacher of mine that I have asked and said, hey, you know, you've been out on – you know, investigations. And he's like, oh yeah, lots of Bigfoot investigations. Like, well, what, what do you got for me? And right. he's like, you know, I got to say every single one of them was faked. Okay. And I was like, wow, really? Like people are putting big feet on and walking around <laughs> in the woods and putting on suits. I, like, I don't know why just to discredit this potential being out there. I, 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 I mean, I, I just don't know enough, but I will say that Indigenous people around the world have always believed in them. And mm. I have seen things and know some really dear friends of mine who have seen things. I haven't, I can't say I've seen a Sasquatch, but um, I've seen some crazy tracks. And so as a friend mm. of mine, maybe there is some big old hairy beast out there that maybe lives in between the worlds, you know, maybe it can. Right live in between these two worlds of reality. And that's and, what I've heard as well. Trans-dimensional being. Yeah. And right? hey, you know, science is proving this stuff. This isn't spiritual woo-woo stuff anymore. Right, right. I mean, physics and- it's, The multiverse. Yes. It's right. totally proving it with science, what mystics and, you know, medicine men and women have been saying for eons. So this is a really exciting time where, you know, people who are talking about these spiritual things can be backed up by science now. And Maybe one day we'll find them. It, it does seem weird to me that we don't have really definitive proof yet. Right. That with so many people in the woods, you know, and there's so many people in the wilderness. So I don't know. It's a hard, it's a hard topic. Well, apparently Washington has a law that it is illegal to shoot a Sasquatch. Oh, wow. And I guess people laughed about it and, but the reality was, is that they were trying to protect anybody who might be out there dress up as a Sasquatch. Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Cause isn't there a million dollar, um, is there, there's like a million dollar prize or I don't know if it's a prize, but a million right. dollar reward, reward yeah. for bringing in a Sasquatch body. Someone will pay a million dollars. Wow. I was asked that on a hunting trip one time. If you saw a Sasquatch, would you shoot it? No, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Everyone's different, but for me, the answer is. No, if no. I saw a Sasquatch, no, I would not shoot it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so. But I, they were alive and well, like I'm not saying alive and well, I shouldn't say that, but when I lived out for a year and a half, just out in the wilderness of BC there, I got to say all the stories and if I'd run into, you know, some clam diggers on the beach, 
you know, we'd gather around a fire and they'd start telling stories about Sasquatch for sure. I mean, it was one of the first questions someone would roll up and you hadn't seen anybody for like three months and like, hey, have you seen the big fella? You're like, <laughs> nope, not yet. And they're like, whoa, because, you know, my cousin was here, you know, a couple of years ago and the sass was hucking out clams at him. I've heard that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I was like, well, and just all the stories, you know, some nights just going to the your outhouse or something in the pitch black you know of we didn't have headlamps they didn't yeah. bring a headlamp so you're kind of like oh <laughs> you know and hearing strange whistling noises you're like oh that was I, I dreamed about Junaqua a lot out there and was kind of spooked I have to say I'll be honest I was spooked I, I didn't want to see a Sasquatch or definitely not Junaqua you know with the pierced red lips and yeah. whistling and I mean she's known to steal people and I've read the stories. Um, it's I'm, not like a, you know, friendly forest spirit. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason I asked about that is because I thought it'd be a good segue into, there's a whole spiritual side in your book and to you about being outdoors. And I thought that was a really interesting take that you have on it. And some of the stuff that people might look at it, if they're casual observers, mm -hmm. Uh, would say, Hey, that's really kooky. Oh, totally. But there's also, there, there's a, there is an inner truth essentially to, mm. to all of this. And you're talking about birds essentially talking to you. Yeah. Not like, I would imagine not like saying, Hey Nikki, come over here. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I haven't heard that. Well, I've heard a tree actually, which is a crazy story, but oh. no, animals haven't just come out and be like, Nikki, what's up? <laughs> As <laughs> like, I wish they would It'd be like awesome. Cinderella doing all no. your chores for you. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> so you've, I think it was a raven, was it? That uh, yeah. you followed and you just felt a bit of a connection to the raven and listening to different animals and the different noises that they make out in the wild would have different meanings behind them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can learn, anybody can learn the language of, I don't just mean nature, I mean the language of animals for sure. I mean, bird language is a very, I'm not going to say easy thing to get into, but it's very well documented now from mm. teachers that I've learned from. Um, they do have a language and there is, like you said, something deeper and there's something deeper there. And I, I just, I can't dismiss it anymore. I've mm. seen it happen and had these experiences that there's no doubt that there is something deeper and beyond of what I can understand going on. And animals definitely have shown me that and opened me up to this kind of spiritual world and, um, that we live in, whether it's in this room or in nature and nature just is the purest place I find to find it or experience it because mm. it's just all truthful out there. There, there isn't all these other things that come involved with people and our society and cultures and our belief systems. So you can be stripped down to something and have these experiences out in nature. Do you have any examples? Yeah, gosh, I have so many examples. Um, Gosh, um, yeah, just with every animal, I can't really simply, like when I was first learning it, and this is why I'm sitting here talking to you today, I mean, these kind of, ma I use the word magic, I, I feel like it's just, I love it because I'm part, I haven't really grown up, so magic to me, I'm just like a little kid, I love magic. And that was my first job, <laughs> I, I performed magic yeah. at kids' birthday parties when I was in elementary school. Nice. <laughs> and 
so I feel like magic is just when you're really connected to yes, something. Yes. So um, just little things, you know, I'd be sitting in the woods going, oh, I don't know what that bird is singing. Wouldn't it be great? Could you just come and sit on this branch right in front of me? And then sing. So then I can actually see you and I can hear your song. And literally within seconds, this bird would fly out of a tree somewhere, land on that exact stick I was imagining and scream out its song to me and be like, oh my gosh, did you just hear me? And it just made me go, wow, that was, you know, synchronicity or whatever you want to call it. But there was other, so many more examples. You know, my book I talk about with the cougar that Mm. came by and that's, been a really powerful story, a teaching story for me, for sure. You know, having my greatest fear being the dark and cougars and then deciding to go and sleep outside with a sleeping bag to try to overcome those fears and lying there and, you know, having this animal walk up to me and then plop down beside me and start purring. Whoa. You know, I mean, just that. I mean, animals don't just come and lie with you in general, you know, it happens to some people. Sure. Um, But to be actually trying to face that fear, you know, and then the animal comes and sleeps right next to me all night, you know, purring. And it was, it just opened me up to this world that I was like, wow, some other things are going on here that I don't know about. And it's happened to me every time I can go into the woods, I can have those experiences, small and and large. You know, we want to have these big experiences, but there are so many small little ones that can build up to you being able to be open to receive these kinds of things. And I think one of the things that helped me was I have this mentor in my life and he'd always say, Nikki, when you just go anywhere, you know, you're at the river, you're in the forest, just say, hi, forest, it's Nikki. I'm just uh. here. And he he's just the most beautiful man. He'd always be like, hi, this is, you know, it's Nikki. I'm here. I'm just letting you know. I'm happy to be here. Whatever. Just have this little minute conversation. And uh, I've always done that from him. And, you know, whenever I want a question answered and I need help, you know, going on alone was the same thing. I didn't just make this decision instantaneously like hey i need to go sit in the woods and i'll get back to you in a few hours right and you know i went out there and um i always do that and animals will show up or there'll be some sort of thing i mean i've even i've been lost in the woods legitimately not Mm. very little skills too and um been like hey you know nature i really need some help like if you can send me a direction to walk to, like, I got to get out of here. And I just sat down quietly. And like you were talking about, I kind of just let go of all of the yakking. So mm-hmm. I can just really, th- I see everything and listen with all of my senses in that moment. So then it does quiet out all those yakking. If you really use and are looking everywhere and not moving your head necessarily, but wide angle vision and listening and feeling in that moment. And um, a bird came. And landed right beside me, this very thrush. And I was like, oh, like, I'm not saying anything to it. I don't want it to fly away, but I'm just like, okay, there's a bird. And then it looked at me and then it jumped on the perch and faced another direction and just started singing. And then jumped back, looked at me and then jumped. It did this like three times. And I was like, wow, like, I don't know what that means, but I'm going to like run in that direction. I have like a few minutes before dark. And I was like, I'm going to give it 10 minutes. So I'm just going to run that way. And popped out and found my car. Holy crow. Yeah, it was amazing. You know, there's, there is definitely a lot of things out there that science just can't lock down. And there's, like you're saying, quantum physics and and all of the quantum realities that uh, 
being open to experiencing these things and being able to either interpret prior to or interpret afterwards in a, in a way that I, th I find that really yeah. interesting. It is about being open. It's, it's not a, a judgmental thing. You know, when you bring in all of the things from city and your life and your past experiences into nature, it, they will expose, nature will expose all of those things, mm -hmm. everything, your, your strengths, your weaknesses, everything becomes open. And so when you can actually be very open to experiences out there without bringing all of that with you, then I think you can have this different connection with nature that goes much deeper than just the name of a plant or this is the behavior of this animal, but it becomes like a relationship with them instead of just feeling slightly connected or knowing the facts about something. There's just this deeper level of relationship that I've been able to build over the years just by being me and being open to even things I didn't believe in, mm. you know, just being like, hey, could just like Sasquatch, yeah. could, be, could be, you know, I, I'm not willing to say no or 100% yes, like, um, but hey, could be. So everyone's locked down with COVID, mm -hmm. they social isolation, not being able to see their friends, but yeah. they are encouraging people to be outside. That's an aspect that I bet a lot of people don't think about is that relationship with the outdoors. Would, would you have any advice for people to strengthen their relationship with the outdoors or even just start to appreciate and allow the, the outdoors to heal them? Yeah, I do. And I've been really working on that a lot in the past month. I'm designing this business based around this idea called Luminaria uh, Wilderness Ventures. And I do, I want to have people be able to come out with myself and my team and experience what I experience to be able to see nature in the wilderness, how I see it in a way, not to say that the way I see it is right, but just as a more of a relationship building experience rather than, you know, we hike to the top of the mountains and we get to the view and we take some Instagrammable pictures and then right. we go home and you miss all the things along the way. Like I rarely get to the end of a trail. I just, I, for me right now being in the city, you know, I'm trying to hike like everybody mm -hmm. and get some exercise and it's all I can do to force myself to stay on that trail. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think the one thing that I would say to people is to slow down, you know, this idea of slow travel, it, mm. you know, use your getting exercise as one exercise. You know, if you want to get in shape, that's one way, but you need to just sit and find a spot that you go to all the time. Um, this idea of the secret spot, you know, Sam Gribley had it. Like mm -hmm. um, my teachers have always taught me about it. And to find a place in nature, even if it's your backyard or your window or your balcony, and you just sit there, just sit there for 20 minutes is about what it'll take people. It's a lot easier or quicker the more you learn your area and sure. animals respond to you differently, as you know, like sure. the first three days when you're on a hunting trip, you're all over the place and animals yep. are like running. Every bird is like, yep. hey, they're coming through. <laughs> and then eventually yep. no one's caring, not caring about you, but they're like, oh, hey, yeah, they're there. It's not a big deal. They're, you know, you've, you've let go of all of that chatter in your mind, which is what scares animals away. So I just slow down, you know, down. just sit in the forest, just go to the park and sit there and see what you can see. And eventually all those animals are going to use, not just used to you there, but 
they'll accept you. You know, pretty soon the squirrel's not going to be like alarming you for 15 minutes, right? Yes. <laughs> All the little brown birds will be quiet when you're walking through the trail eventually. They're not going to be like, oh, human coming, human coming, and the next bird picks it up. And um, you'll eventually get that energy about yourself that's uh, with nature rather than I'm just visiting you know, and that's what I want to teach people is how to become not just a visitor to the wild spaces, but. I'm really looking forward to yeah. seeing that business develop. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a, there's an indigenous woman who once told me, she said, if the squirrels start setting their alarm off, quit hunting that area. Oh yeah. Got it. They're, they're talking, the squirrels are talking to the elk, they're talking to the oh, deer, yeah. they're telling them to stay away. And I'm like. You know, there's probably some wisdom to that one. Oh yeah, they will. The birds, especially too. You know, get to know all the brown birds. Yeah. The the birds that live in the treetop, uh, they don't too care. They don't care that much about you because they more live in the treetop. So they're yeah. more concerned about, hey, a hawk's coming in. I found the owl, whatever. But the little brown birds that live on the ground, the wrens and the sparrows, man, get to know those guys. Even the robins because they feed on the ground. Okay. Because those are the ones that are gonna send all of the alarming. They can go for miles. Every bird in the next territory will pick up a call if it's intense enough, and then they'll spread it that way. And every deer, every game animal, if you will, is keyed into bird language, every single one of them. And if you're, you know, I mean, you've, I'm sure, seen this. When I'm trying to get up close to a deer, you know, when they stop, I stop mm. moving. They, they look at you like, hey, if you're still moving when this guy's telling us this, you clearly have no idea what's going on <laughs> in the woods, you know? <laughs> and you can't just freeze all of a sudden when an animal sees you. Then it's like, why are you frozen still? Like, I see you. You're like, yeah. no, I'm just a tree. And you're like, no, I saw you move and now you're not. <laughs> so you better pick up and start grazing or start nibbling on leaves. And then uh -huh. the deer will be like... Okay, you're a grazer. Okay, I get that because I'm a grazer. Okay, awesome. Now, now you're picking up that berry and eating it. I'm like, okay, like I feel a lot less, uh, you know, sketched of you now because you're showing signs of doing what I do. That's yeah. interesting. Mm -hmm. See, when I was younger, I was taught a 45 degree trick for getting rabbits. Never go right towards a yeah. rabbit. Pretend you're not interested <laughs> totally. at all. Go at about 45 <laughs> degrees and play around on the, but- for some reason, I never actually put a correlation between that and any other animal. Yeah, absolutely. Deer, I mean, I can get just like touching deer because you can, if you stop when they stop and they're looking, you're like, oh, I'm looking over in that direction too. I don't often know what, you know, what they saw here. I mean, they have huge ears. I can't possibly hear what they're hearing right. on a level, but I can look in the same direction and stop. And they're like, oh, sweet. Nikki stopped too. That's great. Um, perfect. Cause if you don't and you're still oblivious, then they get all nervous, you know? And if you're like, Hey, don't worry about me. I mean, when I'm stalking up and I don't want them to see me, it's different. But once they have seen you or you screwed up and they're like, right. Oh, Hey, I see you over there. You're like, Oh, right. Well, I'm just you know, eating too. Um, <laughs> and then they're like, oh, okay. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a really fun way of learning different types of animal behavior for sure. Do you have any tips for stalking an animal if you don't want them to see you? Yeah. If you don't want them to see you for sure. Like, so, uh, yeah, I mean, kind of still hunting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's my, obviously the only way I know how, yeah. um, I mean, I can sit in a blind as anybody, but I, I, I get too fidgety after a while. I'm like you. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I just, I'm like, oh, okay, this is getting a little. Um, so yeah, like I, um, I definitely, I learned this from my cat actually that I took in the bush with me. Okay. Um, Scout. Scout. Yes. Uh, she's all time stalker. So she would always, um, she always stops in the shadows, obviously. She would never go across an open space ever. Mm. I mean, if she did, she was just skirting or on her belly. I mean, it was amazing to watch her in open spots. And she would wait until there was some sound or movement in nature and then move. Like she would never move when there wasn't either a leaf falling or a, a bit mm. of a rustle and then she would move. And she would and I learned this too from a class of mine in camouflage because it's my favorite thing to do. And um, it's like imagining you are that, that you're hiding behind or it goes on to what we've just been talking, kind of this spiritual invisibility. Mm -hmm. There's something different about camouflaging your mind than just your body. Right. You know, I, I I can be in full pink, whatever, bright red clothing yeah. and can have the same results as if when I'm fully camouflaged, when I'm really good at just camouflaging my mind, all the thoughts that pop in there, fear especially, or like aggressive feelings. Um, I've seen this with a lot with cougars. Um, when you're in a situation being really close to them, if you just take this really, you know, gentle breath and let it out mm. immediately they will let it out that coming together so close to animals for so many times in my life i've seen my body reaction in them and it's been able to make me instantaneously be able to let go of any fear any emotion any kind of besides just peace you know and just this mm. calmness um otherwise you're dead so you got to kind of learn it pretty quickly but um there's ways of practicing it with animals that aren't dangerous you know like you can practice it with robins are great i mean robins are okay. hard herons are an amazing animal to stalk if you can stalk up to a heron i mean you can get any animal because they are the ultimate in silence and slow right. movement and that and so practice on these other animals that aren't dangerous and then you can learn and see how you can control your emotions better in those moments because as soon as you go oh my gosh i don't have my knife on me and there's a cougar four feet from you right. that rise immediately i've seen cougars just turn their head and look at me with the most intense eyes that you're like i'm about to die and then you're like mm. oh no i love you like everything's good everything's calm and then immediately they go back to what they're doing and then as soon as you get that feeling of like that moment where you're about to take a shot and you're getting <gasps> you know you got to just they'll they'll sense that they 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 sense more than i think people um, really give them credit for on this, I don't know, energetic level. I, I believe it. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was younger being taught cam and concealment and one of the tricks the instructor said was if you're camouflaged and somebody's walking by, don't make eye contact. Yeah. Don't look at them, right? Look to the side, use the periphery of your yes. vision. He says, don't ask me why. It's some hoodoo voodoo kind of <laughs> totally thing. Totally it is. But you look at them and more often than not, they'll just turn and stare right at you. Right at you. Exactly. I mean, one time I was practicing this. I'll never forget. Oh, so cool. You reminded me of the story. I haven't thought about it for years. But I was practicing invisibility and I was sitting on a park bench. And there wasn't a lot of people around, but I was sitting on this park bench and, you know, watching these ducks in front of me or whatever. And I noticed some people coming down the trail 
And I was like, okay, like I'm, I'd been there sitting there quite a while. And the person came up and I thought they were just going to walk by me, mm. but they didn't. They started slowing down. I was like, oh, maybe they're coming to sit here. So I just stayed in this space and one lady almost sat on me until I was like, hey. And she turns like, oh my God, you just appeared. You literally were not there. And I was like, no, I've been here the whole time. She's like, no, you weren't. And I was like, yes, this lady almost sat on me. Like, it was so good. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Um, yeah, that was fun. So yeah, I mean, camouflage is, is, is so much fun. I just, I love it. There's so, such a depth to it rather than just smearing stuff on your face that people think it is, you know? Totally. Yeah. So in 2011, you mentioned a traumatic experience where you nearly died and it mimicked, it mimicked in many ways your dream of Junaqua, but a barred owl saved your life mm. afterwards. Yeah. After the event, from what you described, looks like you were suffering from a form of PTSD. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I have no problem saying, Hey, I've lived through some traumas and have suffered through PTSD. If you think that's valid for your listeners. Well, it's just, it was an interesting thing that came up and mm -hmm. I, and I don't want to be taking the podcast in a certain direction if it's not a place you're comfortable with, but with people who have been through trauma. Yeah. I, I did a podcast with a, a fellow who runs a, an outfit in Alberta. And it's called veteran hunters and they do, mm. they take veterans out hunting and they use, it's just sort of like the Japanese have nature bathing. Yeah. But he takes an activity which some people would, uh, ascribe violence and, uh, sort of a negative energy to, yeah. and he says, no, 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 no. You're, you're out there, you're stalking the animal, yeah. you're with like-minded people who've been through like experiences and using nature in, in a hunting situation. Yeah, but, but I mean, you need to learn all kinds of things to be a great hunter. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it is much more than just killing animals. Absolutely. It's and, a great and, program. And he uses that to assist people to work through their PTSD. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess with mental health being on the forefront yeah. with everybody in lockdown and with COVID and I guess the question that I was asking you there was essentially from the interest side in the story, but why don't we keep that as a personal story for you? And yeah, no, I have no pro I love talking about this stuff. You know, my, my new, my new company is, is part of its foundation is based on our emotional state that we're in. Um, I personally have lived through quite a lot of traumas and mm. PTSD events. So I, I really want to bring that as part of my business as well. I'm going to hire, um, different alternative therapists and things as well. Um, I'm not going to go into great detail with my company in it, but I do right. believe that nature is an amazing place for healing and to work through just common issues that we're all going through during COVID, especially, I mean, it doesn't need to be PTSD levels, but you know, our, Depression is, you know, a growing concern, um, in youth and in adults. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I do believe that wilderness places are a way for us to be able to be free enough and be who we truly are to deal with these kinds of, um, mental problems that we're having in our lives and our, in our, in our culture for sure. Um, I know for a fact, especially with alone, uh, I'll be very honest, it was very traumatizing for me to be pulled out 
um, how I was on the show. Tell me about that. Um, yeah, I mean, it did traumatize me. There was no doubt. I mean, I was feeling the happiest and most joyous I can ever remember being on on a survival trek. I never felt pain and suffering and I was never tired and exhausted and just all those things that come with survival that you have to work through. Somehow, I have no idea how this happened, but somehow I just, I never felt those things. I was never hungry, even wow. though I was barely eating. Um, I, I had... I could hike for miles on my trap line and not feel tired. I mean, it just felt amazing, even though I was losing a lot of weight and I had lost an extraordinary amount of weight. How that, much How much weight did you lose? Um, I th It was over 30 pounds. I came in, I think, at about 126 pounds, which wasn't a lot. I really should try to fatten up. Just <laughs> My body's like, I don't do this. And you're like, no, please. I'm going on a show about being fat. <laughs> <laughs> I need extra weight. Um, so, and I think I got down to 97 pounds. Wow. Um, it was a lot. And so really, there was concern of my weight loss. There was mm -hmm. no doubt about it. And um, I was concerned to a certain point. Um, I certainly had never seen my body. I knew that there was concern in the producers. I could tell. I mean, they're very, you know, straight face. I mean, mm. they're not yakking to you. And it's just very like, Hey, I'm doing my job here. I'm taking your vitals and blah, blah, blah. But I could mm. tell sometimes when I would lift up my shirt as much as they were trying to, I was like, Ooh, they looked a little concerned there. Um, and so, yeah, when I got taken off the show, um, it was like, as if I was being kidnapped is how I felt. My mm. mind made it seem like I was being kidnapped against my will. And I spent about two weeks, um, trying to heal from that uh, out in the field. Mm -hmm. And the production was incredible. They gave me every resource and people to talk to and psychiatrists and wow. amazing food and a f recovery program. And they did everything they could to help me. But going from this experience where I'm like living as happy as I could ever be in my life to quickly getting on an airplane and flying into a hospital, be tested for something that I was like, there's nothing wrong with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then being like, ah, oh, we're just going to have to monitor you in town. And then being in town and just my mind just snapped. And I was like, I need to get out to the woods again. And mm. um, so I got back out to the woods and took about two weeks in this little cabin. And they were really great in letting me kind of, go out of my cabin when I wanted to. And I started talking and doing just like what I said. I'm like, wow, I really feel terrible about the last, you know, hair that I trapped um, on the day that I was taken out of hair that I found on the trap line as I was taking my trap line mm. before I left. I was like, I'm not leaving here until I take all my traps down. Like, so they hiked around with me. And I, Good for you. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, just, it was a slow process. And I realized how important nature was for me. And I think for other people too, it can be a place to really be able to, you know, see the patterns in your life from your past experiences that are still with us and into our future that we still live from. And they're mostly these false belief systems that we have about ourselves, these stories that we tell ourselves that is a complete lie. Mm -hmm. um, you know, especially from tra traumatic situations, we, we make up all kinds of coping mechanisms and um, 
these things can really come to light in the wilderness because it's just such a pure place to be and safe. You know, mm-hmm. as much as we're can be afraid of big game and wildlife and spiders in the dark and all these other things, <laughs> like in a safe environment with safe people that know how to take care of you right. um, and teaching you to take care of yourself in nature, I think is a great space for um, helping to heal ourselves and the planet. I really feel like now that the way to save our planet is by healing ourselves. I mean... And that's kind of the mission of my new company is just trying to help people have this relationship with nature in a different way Um, through, look, I'm a big adventure fan, so Mm -hmm. I'm all about pushing the edge, whether it's pushing the edge of adventure or pushing the edge of self-discovery. And that's kind of what my new company is going to be about. That's a a very ambitious goal. It is. It's all going to be really customized to each individual group or person. Um, so that it can be fine-tuned to what your fears are potentially or what your what animals you want to, you know, make better relationship with or see. or So it'll be really customized to, like, your interests in nature. So it's... Very cool. Um, it's not just going to be, like, a one-stop shop. That's for sure. Well, I'm going to put some links up in the, in the bio and on the YouTube page. I know it's a, uh, a fledging business. Yes. Do, you, do you have a website for it yet? I don't have the website. I just was a-okayed by the name, which I can't <laughs> believe the process that I went through through that. I finally just had uh-huh. to make a phone call and say, look, it's impossible to name a company in 2021 that isn't already out there. I'm right. sorry. Like I'm looking up Sanskrit dictionaries to come up with some Come on. So <laughs> they finally a-okayed it and uh, I've incorporated it. And so I'm just moving into the next steps of getting the website out. And I've have a great team of people already ready, ready. And well, that's excited about it. Hugely helpful. Yeah. Trying to get a business started in this day and age in some ways, like if you want an internet based business or something online, incredibly easy, Yes, low barrier to entry. If you want to have a physical boots on the ground, bricks and mortar type of a business, holy crow, the number of barriers that you have to work through. Oh. I had no idea and I, I'm way over my head in this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> my skills are actually in the forest, not right. sitting like trying to design this corporation, but, um, I'm hiring great people that are experts in their own worlds and to help me. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, a it's one of those things, you know, I've always said, um, I'm always doing what scares me the most. And I got to say, starting this business is pretty scary. <laughs> so I know I must be on the right track. Good for you, Nikki. <laughs> Well, is there anything else that we should chat about? What what other what are things for your listeners would they be interested in? Everything. The, mm. the, this this whole thing is a figment of my mm. ADHD mind because yes. the, the Silvercore podcast is on paper about hunting, firearms, yeah. foraging, fishing, uh, outdoor pursuits, and the people and businesses that comprise the community. Yeah. But in reality, I've had the inventor of the invisible cloak on here. Nice. Really cool guy. Cool. And I would have called BS <laughs> unless I had, I've got a picture in here holding it up. Sick. And the, the guy, Guy Kramer, brilliant fellow. And I thought, well, you know, camouflage, that's, yeah. that, that could be be on, that's a hunting thing. We'll Heck fit yeah. that in. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, we've had a fellow who came top of his class on FBI, uh, Virginia Quantico. Firearms instructor and 
uh, suffered a horrific motorcycle accident mm-hmm. uh, and, and another fellow was mauled by a grizzly bear and fought it off with his pocket knife. I mean, yeah, I, I the idea behind this podcast is I want to talk with people who I find interesting yeah. and I want to have fun. So if the listeners don't like what I'm talking about, they can tune into something else. I'm <laughs> totally. not, I'm not doing it for likes or listens <laughs> totally. or anything like this is just totally. me having fun. Yeah. I'm trying to think of, um, everybody wants to hear some of the stories that never get published, you know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I love talking about things that obviously all the big events that happen, you have to share because those are so cool, sure. but there's always these other underlining stories that happen to any of us in, in the woods that don't get shared. And especially on a television show, um, you know, somebody else is telling your story and yeah. um, it's hard to, like there's not much time to mm-hmm. be able to tell your story. So it has to be the, the big events or whatever. Um, and yeah, I, I, I never thought that going on a re- reality TV show for one and a game show would mm-hmm. be anything that I would, you know, want to do. But you're competitive. But I'm super competitive. Right. And I finally realized that there was $500,000 on the line. I did not know that in the previous years I was asked. So really? <laughs> yeah, I was asked for like... <laughs> Five years, I, every year since yeah. it started. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm not really into that. I'm kind of doing stuff or whatever. And then on season six, I was like, yeah, you don't want to win the 500,000. I was like, what? Half a million? <laughs> Half, Sign yes, me up. where are we going? And I remember she said, uh, yeah, we're going to the uh, Arctic. And I was like, ooh, yeah, I don't really know anything about snowy locations or been in the snow. Mm-hmm. Um, is there trees and because all I thought was polar bears and, you know. Icebergs, icebergs penguins. Icebergs, ice, and <laughs> polar bears that eat you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she's like, oh, yeah, I think so. I was like, how about I need a 100% definition. There's some trees, and then they'll get back to you. So yeah. anyway, she was like, yeah, there'll be trees. And so I was like, okay. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think one of the things I learned about um, hunting when I was on alone was you know I'm not a I'm not a big game hunter. I've only shot animals with bows and arrows. I don't think of myself as a hunter. Um, I'm a trapper. I have a trap line. I really don't think of myself as a trapper much sure. either. But it was so amazing to learn how to be a hare trapper. Mm. It was I think the best part of my time out there. And I would never have believed that that would have been something I would have been that excited about. And it was so incredible to learn about an animal I really didn't know anything about. I've never lived with hares or rabbits. Mm -hmm. Um, And to, you know, have to ditch fishing because just I didn't have a spot. I needed to wait to froze over and I was wasting too much time. So I was like, okay, I'm switching. I'm just going to be a hair trapper and to walk the landscape and try to find sign that I was, you know, I'd read about, but, you know, I didn't really have that, you know, experience in the woods with and Mm -hmm. setting up the traps and like really learning from every rabbit that I trapped, like to be able to learn on the go like that for your very existence and the money. You know, I was there not for the experience. The only thing I was there for was that money. Right. I got to say, I didn't have these other things that most people do going on the show. Like, yeah, I want to test myself. I was like, no, kind of already done that. I was like, I just want the money. Like, that's it. And um, to have something like that fueling you is really odd too. Um, And so that I think the learning how to trap that, the hairs was this really incredible way to has what we've been talking about the whole afternoon of 
getting a relationship with that land was mm. through the rabbits and through trapping. It wasn't me wandering around and, you know, sitting there and getting berries. It was actually hunting animals that um, connected me with that land in a much more deeper way. And I think that's something that people don't often think about in far of the hunting world, you know. But I learned so much about that land and the history and the other animals that were living there through those rabbits and the rabbits that I was successful in getting. And um, it was a really profound kind of realization for me that, wow, this is one path to developing this relationship that I'm talking about, which you wouldn't imagine necessarily to be. But it brings a whole wholeness to the story by utilizing that animal for my own life. It does. Um, you know, non-hunters will have a difficult time understanding that. Yeah. Because they look at the act of hunting, quite the uh, initial imagery is typically male dominated firearm yeah. and shooting an animal. And that's hunting in the non-hunter, most non-hunters mind when the diversity in hunters is growing on a daily basis. Yeah. The act of actually, if you're using a firearm to hunt of shooting is only just a minuscule portion of everything that's yeah. involved. And hunters share an understanding of the land and an understanding of the animals in a way that non-hunters would have a very difficult time to, to appreciate. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I will say there was, there's so many moments where, you know, I mean, having a hair in your trap was like, this is another day I get to live out in this amazing space. I mean, when I would find an animal or shoot a squirrel, it was like, yes, like a couple more days out here I got. Like just every day I woke up thinking that like, yes, like I'm so excited for life. This intensity and joy for life every day out there was so incredible. And to be able to bring that back into my life now has changed my life completely. And um, I, I have to say, sometimes I'd be walking my trap line and, you know, you'd see the rabbit off in the distance and I'm like, okay, come on. At least just this one time, don't cry. Okay, just uh. come on. You can do it, you know? And I walk up there like, yes. Like, you, you know, I don't have to just... And then all of a sudden I'd see it and just be like, oh, I'm so grateful. You know, and this sense of gratitude that happens to you out there in a real survival situation like that. Gosh, just this gratitude just overwhelms me. And I'm just, I'm like, oh gosh, okay. Well, I definitely have to cry. <laughs> it's so fun. <laughs> and then eating rabbit, that was your primary source of protein, was it? Yeah. Rabbits and squirrels. Uh, and wow, I'd never, I've, I've tasted hair before, but wow, it was so good. I can't believe it. Uh, I'm People always are laughing because my favorite part, like my dessert, was always the eyeballs. I can't believe how good those rabbit, the bunny eyeballs were. It was so good. I just saved them till the end. And the tongue. You and Bear Grylls, eh? Yeah. It was so ridiculous. I was like, oh, wow. Like, you know, it's the classic drama of television. I was like, no, wait, this is gourmet, I have to say. Like, eyeballs. I'm elevating these guys to gourmet. So I've had fish eyeballs. Oh, yeah, they're pretty good. Yeah. These are better. Better? I, I don't know why, but yeah, I'm all about making... You know, gourmet wild meals. Forget those like disgusting gray soups with ash and charcoal bits yeah. in there. <laughs> yes. 
It's like a, a Bear Grylls episode where he had Will Ferrell out and the whole celebrity taken. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, they just ate the eyeball off. I forget what creature. Oh. Then, then later on there's a, uh, I think it was an eagle flying above and Will Ferrell's, mm, I wonder what its eyeballs taste <laughs> like. <laughs> yep, That's off the awesome. menu. <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah. I, he's classic for eating just gross stuff. Oh, totally. It's his claim to fame. Totally. But I guess if you're just eating squirrels and rabbits, isn't there, so they lack the fat. Yeah. That's required in order for you to keep the pounds on. But isn't yeah. there a, a craziness? What, what's the word I'm looking for? It, isn't there supposed to be like rabbit fever? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like a rabbit po starvation or rabbit poisoning. There's an actual term for it. I should know it. Um, but you do, and you can't live off rabbit. Right. We prove that on alone. Um, sure. you, you literally can't, there's no fat. So that's why fish is pretty important Right. because they do have a lot of fat on them and you know, there's fat around the kidneys or whatever, but it's so minuscule that, mm -hmm. um, yeah, you will die from eating rabbit after a while. It's just too high in protein. I've heard that you have some sort of a, uh, you can go a little nutty before dying. Or am oh, I off, ba or am I I no off base on this one? <laughs> I'm pretty sure you go nutty once you start starving to death. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Your, your functions they, of your brain start going down. Knew a, a fellow, his name was uh, Mike Gallen, and he owned a um, place years ago called Mike's Musket Shop. Uh, he was a multimillionaire who decided to leave his mansion and all of his property to his wife and his son. And he went up to Lillooet and they called him the grape rancher. He built himself a little cinder block house and I think he could speak with five different languages, wow. uh, a very eccentric fellow. And he was talking about, uh, when he was in the concentration camps and the amount of weight that he lost mm. and some of the atrocities of the rest, but his first meal that he had when he was out was a very high fat content meal. And you'd always tell me that meal almost killed him. Yes. Well, um, the production team of Alone, they have a very strict refeeding program for the, for the, that exact reason. Mm. Um, because we are starving to death out there, literally, right. literally. I mean, there's been some serious cases of people being pretty sick mm. um, and pushing yourself to that point of like, wow, like I can barely walk, you know? Mm. Um, I know on my first trek, I got to the point I could barely walk. Uh, I know what that feels like. You can barely move around, like picking up any pot. You're like, can't even, I mean, <laughs> you're just skin and bones. Right. Um, but yeah, so alone does do that. They have an incredible refeeding program so that you don't just shock your body. Mm. And it sucks, you know, for most participants because they're like, dude, I just really haven't eaten anything for two weeks. Yeah. Um, I just want to eat you know, chocolate and candy right. and whatever. And so there's just this very long procedure that goes on when you, you get out of the field, which is fantastic. Otherwise, yeah, there's a lot of problems that can happen. So you have a, you have a nutritionalist there, mm. um, that you talk to and she makes up all the meals based on your story out there. So if you hadn't last you know, if you weren't out there as long, then it's different for people who have gone to a certain stage and certain of their, you know, bodies, yeah, their weight to mm. their cardio. I mean, you're all, you have all kinds of tests done on you to determine where you're at and you're refeeding. What was your refeeding process? What did that look like? You know, gosh, uh, 
I was so caught up in my mind. I literally don't really remember mm. much. I remember them, you know, they could, you know, it's broth, mostly a broth. Okay. Um, there's no solid foods right away. So it's just mostly soup with mm. just a broth, um, bone broth. is, um, And then once you get through the bone broth, um, you start getting, I don't know, there would be... Maybe a cracker. I think crackers came pretty late, actually. I think the the breads and stuff were very mm. late in it. Um, I, I honestly hardly remember. I remember just eating um, and just journaling. <laughs> like I, I journaled for four days straight without leaving, doing wow. anything. I never slept. I probably didn't sleep for nine days or something, seven or nine days when I came out. Really? Oh, yeah. It was just like... Just I, wired. Yeah, and journaling and just like so... Oh my gosh, there was so much going on and being, I don't just out of that wild setting into, you know, modern, I guess, world, if you Mm. will, was just so overwhelming with your senses being so expanded. It just, it drove me crazy. You can hear every single thing. So, Mm -hmm. um, I just journaled and was just like, I'm just going to write like how I felt out there and why don't I feel like that now? (laughs) Like I need to get back. And now I'll just tell them like, I just want to get back to how I was feeling in the woods and then I'll be ready to go home and Mm -hmm. call my family. I mean, I didn't call my family for a couple weeks probably until I was like, Hey, I figured everything out. I'm ready to go. Did did you actually have it figured out? Yeah, I did. Did I, um, they were great. I said, uh, you know, I need some crayons and some big paper. And I just turned my cabin into this. It kind of looked like that. It reminds me of that movie, um, Beautiful Mind. Yes. You know, where he's got all, like, that's what this <laughs> cabin looked like. And it was so amazing when they would come in to, you know, the doctors would be there or whatever. And they're like, okay, it looks like you're doing a lot of work in here. That's as they're true. looking around, like crazy town. I was like, yeah, <laughs> no, I've really got my stuff together. Like I'm just figuring everything out. And um, so just it was bring really me a fun. typewriter and a whole bunch of stamps. <laughs> yeah. They got me a journal <laughs> book and I just started writing and, um, it was really amazing. I started venturing out in nature, obviously, and had some incredible magical experiences on my healing in the Arctic too, that the animals just were like, Hey, we're here. Like, um, it was really neat. Wow. Really, really neat. Well, Nikki, thank you very much for being on the Silver Core podcast. I really appreciate you coming out here and talking. Yeah, it's been really fun. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Thank you so much for having me.